NetSparker, the developers of desktop and cloud-based web application security scanners that enable you to automatically identify vulnerabilities in your web applications and web services. NetSparker scanners employ a unique and dead-accurate vulnerability scanning engine that automatically verifies vulnerabilities with their proof of concept. For more information, visit them on the web at netsparker.com or email at contact at netsparker.com. Recorded Future, they help security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. To get started, go to recordedfuture.com forward slash security weekly and sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily. Every day, you'll receive an email with the top results for trending technical indicators, cyber news, exploited vulnerabilities, suspicious IP addresses, and more. Subscribe today and stay ahead of cyber attacks. Endgame's converged endpoint security platform is transforming security programs, their people, processes, and technology with the most powerful endpoint protection and simplest user experience, ensuring analysts of any skill level can stop targeted attacks before information theft. Endgame unifies prevention, detection, and threat hunting to stop known and unknown attacker behaviors at scale with a single agent. For more information, visit endgame.com. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. Quick announcement. As you know, some of you have told us that you're overwhelmed by the amount of content that we distribute. You can go to securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe. Join the listener interest list. And I always say this every week. It's like we're working really hard. Join the list. Be patient. Working on some technology. It's going to tell you when we produce content that's in your interests. It's really cool. Also, do I need to do the other announcement, too? Sure, why not? Security Week will be at Hacker Halted in Atlanta, Georgia from October 10th through the 11th. EC Council is offering our listeners a $100 discount to attend the two-day conference. Use the discount code HH19SW when you register or go to securityweekly.com forward slash Hacker Halted. Jeff, that's where the super secret cigar thing is that we talked about. Right? Yes. Yeah. So let's tell about it on there. And there's, uh, well, all I said was super secret. I mean, good luck finding it based on that. Um, <laughs> also, what else was I going to say? Kevin Johnson's, apparently, and I think it was after Hacker Halted, I was essentially trolling Kevin on Facebook. Just really, all Fun. I yeah. really do on Facebook when I post things, troll my friends. Uh, he's speaking of some, I think it's right after. And there's like a statue, and yes. there's like the dude's butt in the yeah. statue. Did yes. you see that? I did. And he's the keynote speaker. Right, and, uh, and they, like Kevin Johnson, the keynote speaker, and it's a picture of the statue's butt. Yeah. Yeah, did you hear the reason for that? Uh, I just posted a gif of the scene with, uh, from, let me ask you a question. He's talking <laughs> with his butt. What is that from? Uh, Ace Ventura, Pe- Pet Ace Detective. Ventura, Pet Detective. Yeah. Right. Can I ask you a question? Yes. What's the matter? Afraid to make a stink? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so anyway oh and so i was like someone needs to ask kevin a question like that during the talk and i'm being volunteered but we'll see how that goes in any case can i ask you a question trolling at its finest uh what else we're all we're all done with announcements uh tony is is actually still with us thank you for joining us for the news lee had to drop uh where do you want to start with the news good god we're on to the news finally we're on to the news and crickets. Oh. 
There's, so let's see. There's no PCI story, so Jeff's quiet. Uh, Larry, there was. <laughs> they're, they're all PCI stories. They're all. They, it can all be tied back to PCI. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, Larry, there was an article about Bluetooth vulnerabilities yeah. and Wi-Fi 6. Both. I hadn't seen the Wi-Fi 6 one, but okay. I'll read it real quick because I maybe you've heard about it. But the Bluetooth one, yeah, um, is this the the knob vulnerability? It says spy on encrypted connections. Yeah, this is this is knob. Knob. Yep. Oh yeah, the key there's negotiation so many, of Bluetooth, of course. There's, there's so many jokes here. So of course, many directions we could take yeah. that, but it is short for key negotiation of Bluetooth. Yes. Which is, I mean, it's been a thing for a while. Interesting, they're finding. Vulnerabilities in the key negotiation, right? Which which is good because the key negotiation is um, in Bluetooth Classic, which is the one that Mm -hmm. this issue is a deal with, is uh, incredibly complex. Uh, You think about uh, WPA pre-shared key; it's a four-way handshake. Uh, Key negotiation uh, for joining the PicoNet for Bluetooth Classic, uh, Bluetooth five one up to Bluetooth five one Classic mode, uh, is uh, it's like a 10 step process. Mm. And I think I remember you describing this based on some other Bluetooth vulnerabilities. Yeah. yeah. And uh you know, I don't know how you keep all that shit straight to be honest with you, Larry. <laughs> you got to specialize. Yeah. You got to specialize. It's exactly. Exactly. Josh too, right? <laughs> yep. Like I remember yep. like Exactly. And how you, do you guys keep all that shit straight. And, and the 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 sad part is with the Bluetooth stuff, if you have the capability to sniff Bluetooth mm-hmm. for the technology itself, which is the hard part. Uh, because it, it frequency hop, hops. Frequency hop spread so, spectrum uh, takes 2.4 gigahertz, uh, 79 channels. Okay. Hops between them 1,600 times a second. Mm-hmm. So, and, and it's a non-predictable channel hopping pattern based mm-hmm. on the master's BD adder, the Bluetooth address, or yep. the MAC address. So they're not known uh, because the only way you learn the BD adder is that when it goes into discoverable mode. Right. <clears throat> so yep. you effectively have to sniff the entirety of the 2.4 gigahertz spectrum at the same time. That's expensive. From a, from a software-defined radio hardware yeah, gotcha. perspective, that's that's expensive. We're getting better at it, but I, it's still expensive. Do you need a listening device for a, not all set? You don't need 79 listening devices, but I'm no. assuming you've got a listening device that... Well, multiple you, ones that break the spectrum right, up, right? It, well, if you have 79 listening devices, then you have to be able to concatenate all that Put back all together. together. Yeah. But what you really need to do is you need to listen to everything all at the same time with one listening device. And uh, those software-defined radios with that capability, with that bandwidth, mm-hmm. are incredibly expensive. How expensive are we talking? Ten thousand. Three to three to ten thousand dollars. Okay. Yep. Uh, there's one that uh, that I know of uh, that I want to say runs that is arguably the best in the market for doing this because it's tailored to do this mm-hmm. and it's thirty grand. Mm. So you say I don't have one. Right. Um, but uh, need to work on that. Yep. So you need to be able to sniff all of that to be able to observe all of that pairing exchange. And if you can observe that pairing exchange for doing the key negotiation, you can recover all mm-hmm. of the stuff in the air, just like the four-way handshake. Right. There's one part that's missing that's never exchanged in the air with WPA pre-shared key. That's your pre-shared key. That's right. the only part that's not exchanged in the air. And Bluetooth is same that thing pen? with that ten. Same thing with that ten-way handshake with Bluetooth. Mm-hmm. There's one part that's not exchanged that's in the, the air. It's the pin. It's the pin which is between 1 and 16 characters, 1 and 16 numbers. Oh, see, device manufacturers and their implementations would make you think it's 4. Right. And it's only usually 0, 0, 0, 0. Yeah. For your, or 1, 2, 3, 4, or, or, yeah. or yeah, 1, 1, 1, 1. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Mm-hmm. 
So from a hardware perspective, it's fairly difficult to, to So to do, pull up this attack that's in the article, you need to accomplish what you were describing. Uh, I don't believe oh, so. Okay. Um, they didn't uh, specifically say how they uh, accomplished it. Uh, I didn't really get a dive into it because I only just saw it right before and the is show. The, the LMP, the link manager protocol, is that like a layer two protocol? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yep. Um, when it said it was neither encrypted nor authenticated, <clears throat> it made me instantly think it was likely layer two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, in, in typical Bluetooth hardware, um, uh, LMP um, is sort of where you interact with. Uh, the lower portions of the radio. Right. So you don't get a chance with a, a typical Bluetooth adapter to uh, interact with the baseband or mm -hmm. all the any of the framing. Um, you right. Need it's all hardware. on top you custom, of that. Yeah, you yeah. need custom hardware to do that. And if the uh, link management protocol, LMP, doesn't allow you to interact with the radios in that way, you can't mm -hmm. do it. And none I got you. Do. None of them do. Interesting. Yep. I, 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 I love this, you know. Alice and Bob, after authenticating the linky, Alice proposes that she and Bob use 16 bytes of entropy. This number n be could be between 1 and 16 bytes. Hmm. That sounds familiar. So basically attacking the math for um, Bluetooth Classic uh, mm -hmm. key negotiation. Uh, up through and including um, uh, Bluetooth 5.1, which is the most recent version. That's the most recent popular Version the, the most spec beyond the that? most recent most recent spec version. Okay, I would argue that Bluetooth five has not seen a lot of introduction in new hardware. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, mostly it's in you know like our mobile devices. Yeah, um, I don't think I've started to see it in the the laptops and, and those types of mobile devices. But I see it in some of my higher end audio gear. Most right? likely, most will likely. pair with my phone. Yep, and I'm mostly looking at in the from an audio perspective the. Uh, Audio protocols that ride on top of that, I would right, assume, like right. AptX is one that sure. is like the support for it is spotty. So like mm -hmm. when I have a phone or a music player, I have to look at what it supports for Bluetooth audio communications because right. it'll send HD, like a higher quality audio yep. um, and then pair that with a headphone that also supports that. Right. And not all of them are a match. I mean, in like... It's not even about price or manufacturer. Like Sony has their standard. I think they have a different <laughs> protocol, right? Go figure. Sony the has Sony, their own proprietary protocol, right? But that some people support other manufacturers support the Sony protocol because they've licensed it. Because they've licensed it, right? Mm -hmm. And so you've got to, if you care about audio quality as much yep. as I do, Blue, for so example, Bluetooth five. Uh, the big feature for for you for something like audio mm. quality is available bandwidth. Mm. So uh, you uh, you can significantly increase the bandwidth with uh, Bluetooth. I don't remember the figure off the top of my head. Yeah. Uh, Bluetooth Classic is 2.1 megabit. Uh, uh, Bluetooth Low Energy is 1 megabit. Uh, and Bluetooth 5, um, I think we can do 4 megabit. Yeah, that must be what they're... Yeah. You can either do longer distance or more bandwidth, but not both at the same time with Bluetooth 5. Yeah, and in my case, it's the dis distance is short, short right? Right. Um, yeah, and the audio quality is amazing, kind of off top, but like it, it truly, like the progression uh, up to that technology, I'm like, wow, like, uh, it's pretty close to having a cable. Like, yeah. <laughs> at, at, at the Aptex uh, is one of the standards, so. 
Interesting. Uh-huh. Also, so uh, why, so Wi-Fi six. Wi-Fi six. Wi- yeah. Wi-Fi six. So I haven't done a, a ton of looking at Wi-Fi six, and in fact, I, and uh, Wi-Fi six, if I remember correctly, is eight oh two eleven AX, which mm-hmm. is one of the new. Uh, yep, AX. Uh, I just recently picked up an AX router. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still in the box in my office. Just haven't gotten the opportunity to look at it. Now that you also need a client, I would assume. Yes, that supports that. <clears throat> yep. And um, the the big one, uh, so thinking about, you know, some of the, the reason why you'd have AX is to do performance upgrade. Mm-hmm. Uh, my understanding is AX doesn't do any additional security uh, with Wi-Fi 6. It's just higher speed. Just higher speed. Uh, but then again, if you have devices that don't support, if all of your devices don't support uh, Wi-Fi 6 or AX, you still have to back that back down for your other devices. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you have so a mix of stuff. Wi-Fi access points doing double duty, lower, which is we lower, know. Or, yeah. And or lower common. And just lowering common. everyone to the common down. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So you buy one access point that does AX, and you give it this one name for the de- high-speed devices, and you mm-hmm. get another access point that does the low-speed devices. I mean, ask me how I know this. Yeah. Well, back <laughs> to my audio example, yeah. right? you got a yeah. device that supports AppDex, and yep. one that doesn't, they're going to go down to the lower common denominator, which yep. is lower audio quality. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, wow, 1,024 <clears throat> QAM? That's, uh, so hey. I, I took Mike Osman's software to find radio class yeah. uh, in, um, uh, yeah, at Black Hat, and 1,024-bit uh, QAM is uh, fascinating. Jeff? Fascinating. Jeff? I was hoping we could move on to another story that's got my dander up. All right, flaw, let's do that. Uh, what really grinds flaw, your gears? The flaw Lindsay Lohan. vulnerability management. It's time to get real. Paul's story number 12. And See, perhaps I, didn't, oh. I didn't actually perhaps. read down to all the way to my story number 12, but I thought the <laughs> title was really interesting. <laughs> well, it's a good thing Jeff read it. because. Well, yeah, I was reading it while you were geeking out on Bluetooth. Um, cool. So you can talk. Uh, you're an expert on it now. Well, I was an ex- expert on it before I read the article. Ha! Ha! Uh, I mean, the article's not saying much, but I, I, other than I, I think it's interesting because the, the, the author refers to a, a recent study that says it takes the average – it takes a company on average 38 days to remediate a vulnerability once it's discovered, which, mm-hmm. you know, PCI tie-in. Uh, you're supposed to uh, patch within 30 days of release of the, the patch, of release. and um, but the basic the basis of this article they're referring to a ver- vulnerability management comp- companies and I'm like well what's that and I you know it's it's scanning companies I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago Paul about how you know vulnerability management really shouldn't start with a scan scan's supposed to come later but this whole article the pretext is uh scanning is kind of what we have right now uh, and people aren't doing a good job. Of, it takes them too long, basically, to remediate after the scan results are discovered. Comments? Yeah, I, well, I think, Jeff, you bring up a great point about uh, putting the cart before the horse, right? And mm-hmm. doing some due diligence before you implement the scanning technology. I think there's an over-reliance on that scanning technology to go, oh, we have no patching process, you know, we don't know where all our vulnerabilities are, so we're just going to run a scan and then figure it out. And then, Jeff, I think what you're alluding to is, okay, why don't you try and figure out what you have first, even without a scan, like just knowing you've got systems, 
put a process in place and and do some patching like it you 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 don't have to wait until a scanner finds a vulnerability to go patch it like you can you can like just go patch it like it's cool mm-hmm. right i mean obviously you got to test it uh and all that kinds of stuff but for example uh one of our sponsors automox right i'm like we don't here for our production system we don't necessarily need a scanner right away like let's let's do this I know that we have about a dozen systems that support production. Maybe you've got 120,000 systems, right? Let's deploy a patching solution to all of them. Patching solution is going to tell us, like, hey, you're missing these patches. And, like, let's go schedule them and patch them. In, in, and it's not that simple, right? It's not just like, oh, I've got 20,000 systems. I deploy an agent to all of them, which is you know, small feat. And then it tells me, like, I've got all these vulnerabilities, and I just click a button and go, yeah, no, go patch them. It's obviously more complicated than that. But let's start with that and start building a process. Then then we talk about implementing a scanner, right, to help us find new systems we may not know about, to help us find vulnerabilities that aren't necessarily tied to a patch, maybe it does some configuration, and that kind of thing is a better approach. So to write an article and kind of pick on vulnerability management I'm I'm siding with Jeff here. Like you gotta back up and talk about the process as a whole, not just scanning as like the whole thing, right? Is that kind of what you're alluding to, Jeff? Yeah, and there, there's a section in the middle of the article that uh, there's a bold, you know, paragraph section that says, "Let's get real," and uh, so let's get real. Uh, I think vulnerability management, uh, if we were to define it or if we were to ask people what they think it means, I think too often in in our industry, people somehow equate vulnerability management to scan tools. And I don't think that's completely the fault of um, companies that, you know, build the scan engines like, you know, we both used to work at Tenable. I, I, I don't think they're completely off the hook. But I, I, you know, I, I think despite some companies' best efforts to say no, you, you don't want to use our tools this way. Somehow, the 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 it's it's become pervasive in our in our in our culture in our in our IT culture anyway to uh, rely on the scan as we've been talking about. So there's a statement in here. It says, "Let's be honest." that uh, vulnerability management, it's time to be honest about what vulnerability management actually requires because it currently doesn't cover remediation in any meaningful sense. And it basically goes on, and I think this is also part of the problem, it basically says there's a security group siloed in a company somewhere that runs the scans, produces the results, and and I'm sure we've all witnessed this, then they have to go out and find the owner of the IP address that they scanned and figure out, you know, who owns the not only the system but who owns the application? Who's responsible for it? It can, it, you know, it takes a while. But I, I guess uh, I would love to see a world where uh, you know the admins for systems, the the developers, the people that are maintaining applications, they're the ones that are sort of keeping t- you know keeping up with their own stuff. And uh, as we've been talking about, they find the vulnerabilities because vendors release the you know notices. They're subscribed to ven- you know the vendor. Uh, mailing lists, so they're up up to date on it. They're keeping the systems current. If there's updates that come out, they install them. Obviously, after testing their software and making sure it doesn't break anything. But the the whole notion that there's a security group somewhere that runs the scanner and they're the ones that are 
you know, to, t- to tie in the PCI thing a little bit, fulfilling the requirement of running the scans. Mm. Uh, I can see why somebody would say it doesn't cover remediation, but I sort of had a, a knee-jerk reaction to that, thinking, well, vulnerability management's absolutely <laughs> involved in remediation because you find the vulnerability, whether it, it was the right way to find it or not, and it says there's a patch available, and you go install it. And there are uh, solutions today that will help you uh, apply the patch. Uh, and so this very much ties into, you remember Mayhole that we used to work with at Tenable? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mayhole now works for SaltStack. They're a sponsor of the of the shows here on Security Weekly. Uh, right. Mayhole said, uh, I'll pull two things from our conversations that are relevant to this conversation. He said, firstly, that you know when we were for Tenable, we all worked very hard to um, the developers to write a check when a vulnerability came out, to get that check out to our customers as soon as possible, for Jeff and I to talk to customers, to create blog posts, to raise awareness about it, to tell people that we had the check, that the check was there, to improve the check over time, receive feedback from customers. But then when you'd meet with most customers, they'd say, yeah, that's great, but uh, I'd say this article is pretty accurate. Most people take a little over 30 days to actually apply the patch. So is it worth the effort from both the research and security vendor community to be first to release this check, and is it worth the effort of the defenders to apply the patch when, uh, in reality, it might be more than 30 days before someone comes along and tries to exploit it? Now, obviously, that's an overgeneralization. Major vulnerabilities, we've certainly <clears throat> you know seen that. But look at the RDP vulnerability. Mm-hmm. We didn't have widespread uh, you know exploitation of that, and maybe some would argue we really haven't seen it yet. Um, we did see some instances of it that came much later after the patch was released. So there's there's that issue. The, you the, know, the, I was going to say the other the other point was, uh, and this article kind of speaks to it about that it doesn't cover remediation. When in fact, Qualys, uh, who is also a, uh, now a sponsor of the the network, right? Qualys came out with remediation, I believe, services. Uh, Matt and Alderman and I talked about that at Enterprise Security Weekly. Uh, SaltStack just announced. That in addition to configuration management, they're doing patching. Hmm. And Mayhall's like, we're letting you just go apply the patch. And we're applying all the rules and testing and all the things we have in our platform to go, yep, that's a vulnerability. And go, yep, we're going to go apply the patch. And we're just going to you know, help you automate that. So I think we have moved into that remediation more recently because we have to. Because we just we have too many systems too much ephemeral infrastructure that gets spun up and down. It's not like when we had a data center and everything was you know, static and we had the server that we patched, right? Uh, all of it is, is ephemeral today. Yep. Not was, all of it, was, a lot of it. I was going to add, um, you know, I followed the link to the, the, the study that they had, which yeah. says based on 316 million plus security incidents, the average time it takes is 38 days to patch a vulnerability. Because when I first heard that number, I thought that was kind of suspect because I've I've had too many customers over the years that are running their scan report and they're popping vulnerabilities that are two, three, four, five years old. Correct. And 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 how do you add you know how do you add that into the mix of you know something's been out there for five years? Uh, that's more than 38 days. Um, so uh, I'm interested in sort of chasing down because the, the the link is to yet another article about the study. I haven't found mm-hmm. the actual study yet, but uh, um, you know, 
suffice it to say that uh, st- statistics liar and, and liars use statistics. Yeah. Tony? I, I, I wonder where they actually got those statistics as well, too. Right. What company did they look at? Was it like a small, medium, or like an actual large enterprise company? Because I, I know there's a lot of teams out there that have their own vulnerability management teams that go out and do their weekly scans with Nessus, or they go on and do the patches that they need to do. Um, so that, that number that you just told us just now, that, that seems really like an outlier to me. Mm-hmm. I, th- there's so many ways you can kind of uh, look at the problem, right? Yeah. We talk about vulnerabilities that are three or four years old, right? But in like what areas and what are the compensating controls? There's so many factors to this problem. I mean, obviously, you know, Jeff and I used to work for Tenable. Sure. We thought mm-hmm. about this problem like uh, from a lot of different perspectives in a lot of different ways. And overgeneralizations, I think, is what kills us. And I think that the point we need to get to, and some of what we were talking about with Mayhole this week, was um, when I manage our, our internal software application, right, I still suffer from missing patches. However, I'm in a much better position. Now, it's a small app um, in terms of lines of code overall, I would say, about 8,000 lines of code. Actually, not a, a lot, right? It's a pretty short list of software and libraries that are involved in it. But keeping that patched, I'm in a much better position to do that because as new patches get out, I roll them into my container, perhaps, upgrade the libraries and all the software. I throw that in a test environment. It runs through automated tests and says, hey, you upgraded Apache struts and now your software is broken. You should go fix that. And a developer gets a ticket and they, they fix it. And... You do that when you're only maybe one or two revisions behind, hmm. right? Where I think Equifax, as an example, and so many others, organizations I've worked for, and I'm sure all of us have worked for, right, have seen that technical debt grow, right? They get into a position, let's talk about a software sense, where they've got software deployed. It could be yours, could be someone else's, where they go, they don't have, you don't have that process, and you go, yeah, I, I, I can't upgrade that right now because... I've got this thing on fire over here, literally. I've got my manager going, we need to implement this new project and feature, feature, right? Or new project that needs to come about, right? And I've got my daily maintenance. So I've got tickets coming in. I got to make this firewall rule change and, you know, this other thing and spin up this VM for that group or whatever. And so that technical debt just keeps going until such, you know, it just gets worse. The longer I wait to patch these things, the more things it could impact, the more work it's going to be to do that upgrade. And now I feel so many of us have gotten in that position that we run into situations like this, where there's millions of vulnerabilities. Many of them are three, four plus years old, and we end up with statistics like this. But the other factor is, are those critical to my business? Are those critical to the app? Are there other compensating controls? Is that system pretty much end of life or no one's using it so I could spin it down. If I didn't have a Vuln scanner to tell me about it, I might not know, go, oh, like I meant to, how many of us have been in this situation? <laughs> and before it was, oh yeah, I've got that server in the data center, like I just got to go power it off. Now it's, I don't know, my cloud configuration. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go click gotta, shut down, oh, right? oh, But more importantly, I got to make sure I got the right one yes. and it's tagged the right resource because it's got a really weird friggin' name. Uh, yes. Dude, you have no idea. Yes. So there's even diligence in turning stuff off, right? You don't want, like Larry, you don't want to turn off the wrong thing. So I think there's a lot of different factors that go into this problem. I think what's encouraging for me is as infrastructure becomes code 
And from an infrastructure perspective, we can behave more like DevOps, right? And fix things as we go rather than having a fire drill and um, uh, unplanned work, right? It's what they call it in the Phoenix Project. Avoiding that unplanned work. The longer you wait to do that regular maintenance, I firmly believe <laughs> the more unplanned work is going to crop up at most likely the most inopportune times, like a weekend or a holiday or when you're about to make a big release or an upgrade or whatever it is, right? And now you've got to pay back that debt. And I, I, I firmly believe that vulnerability management, as we're talking about in the context of this article to bring it back, is really about keeping up with your technical debt. Not waiting until there's this huge mission-critical vulnerability, but patching things as we go, normal maintenance and operations, so you don't end up in that spot where, oh, in order to get us to that next version, I've got to go from version 1 to version 2 to 2.5 to 3, <laughs> and then and do all the migrations in between there. And there's a failure and in between. Failure in between. I fix that failure. I get it. Uh, and then there's another failure. Then I've got to revert, and I've got to do it all over again, right? So I, I want to underscore a couple things you said there, Paul, uh, starting with the most recent. Um, no, I'll start with the first one. Sure. Before I lose both of them. Um, <laughs> you, <laughs> shut up, Jeff. Take notes, take notes, all Jeff. Take notes. PCI. Um, you, you mentioned something <laughs> about uh, you find something that's got a – well, and this does relate to PCI. Mm. Uh, duh. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you mentioned something about you know finding the right instance, finding the right container to turn off to, sure. to fix the problem of vulnerability. I want to emphasize because I, I I see too too many organizations that's that's their sort of go to strategy, not for not for remediating a, a a vulnerability on a system, but for passing PCI. Let's just turn, turn it off, off and then it goes away. Yeah, uh, and invariably what does what happens? Someone turns it back on. The QSA walks away. The assessment's over. They've gotten their their out of station of compliance. Okay, we can go turn it back on now. Yeah, not really helping anybody in the in the long run. So I want to underscore that uh, that's not really a good solid approach. Uh, the other thing, just to to just sort of emphasize what you you said at the tail end there about uh, you know the the piling on effect, and when when it finally when it finally catches up to you, you've got to step through three, four, five versions to mm -hmm. get there. That underscores again that the responsibility should really be on the owners of the system or the application, not on some security team that's often, you know, in a silo somewhere that's pu publishing a report or a trouble ticket saying you need to go do this, and it's just routinely ignored for days and weeks and months and years. So I think it's a it's a it's an ownership, and and that goes to sort of the management within a in an organization, not just within the security group, but within the IT group, and even the business operations group. There there needs to be a corporate culture that says, if you own it, keep it current. Yeah, and I don't want to put that responsibility on necessarily the owner, as the ops developer management security team. Like we're all. At the end of the day, we're on the same team, mm -hmm. so like, let's help each right. other, right? I don't want to be. But somebody's got to be the one cracking the whip, and it would I seem agree. To, and it, I, I it think seem to me it should be the owner because it ultimately fall. It should fall on them. I, but I, I mean... think it's management's responsibility to have good leadership, and ultimately they're the owners to give everyone the tools and processes they need 
to not incur that technical debt because it's critical to the business. I think as a generalized statement in security, that's one of the things that we have to underscore for every business is that ownership really falls on the, the leader. And I, I, I read the book by Jocko, Extreme Ownership. Like, mm-hmm. I get that, right? But right. you as a leader have to give your team the information, the tools, the processes, and set the culture mm-hmm. so that... And devote the time. Security yep. and developers and ops and admin and all the people, network teams are all working together to allow everyone to work more efficiently so that you're not incurring that technical debt so that you can be more mm-hmm. agile yep. and apply those patches. So you're I not th- just I throwing think- things over the wall like we used to do back in the day and go, hey, I'm security, I ran a scan, and your shit's really vulnerable. Yeah. You should fix that, I right? Think, I think in, uh, in, in, in Guardian's pen test reports mm-hmm. or any of our reports, uh, in the executive summary, we have that section that says, you know, here's what management should do. And I think the biggest thing that we ever say in that whole management report is you need to give your teams time, resources, tools, and you name it to yes. be able to address all of these issues so that you are not in technical debt. That's the and biggest but, thing that I think management you know, can do. To and that's easy that. to say. So, you know, Matt and I obviously work very closely yeah. together today. <laughs> it's right? really friggin' easy to say. Now, uh, Matt puts forth the business requirements, right? Yeah. And, I mean, I've got the experience and working relationship with Matt to come back and say, that's great that you want this new feature. However, we're going to incur some technical debt if I don't go fix these things. And let's prioritize those things together, understand the repercussions, right? And we make compromises all the time. Like, I'd really love to go, like, rewrite this portion of the code. And I'm like, I understand that's going to take a full week of time and... This is the benefit, and if we decide to put that off, that's cool, but we need to understand the technical debt and prioritize it. And those are the conversations you need to be having with management. And it it shouldn't be about, like, who wins each time, right? You should come to the conclusion that what you decide to do is what's going to help the organization as a whole win, yep. right? And I like to think in that small example where Matt and I are talking about one application maybe in this case, right, that we're working together to make those right decisions, it gets more complicated when you've got more people, more teams, more, you know, hundreds of applications, not just one, on top of all the IT infrastructure and service and whatever you have for the organization, right? But those are the conversations that need to happen. In As management, you need to be fostering the culture, and you need to give people the tools and the time, but that has to be balanced with the business needs. Right. I guess it's my, my point when I heard you say, like, people need tools <clears throat> and time. like. Yep. If you just gave people tools and time, they'd be like, "I want to rewrite the interface in this," and I don't know, it was fancy. Yeah, like, yeah. and we get, I, yeah, like, yeah, I yeah, get tool, that as a nerd. Tool, like, tools and time to do the appropriate task. I put that right on the table. I'm like, I would love to do this because I think that's really cool. To be honest, the benefit might be this, so you know, maybe not the time, but that'd be really cool, right? So I think having I think those frank conversations are important. I think ultimately, Paul that the 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 uphill battle for a lot of companies is the culture of and and we we as an industry have unfortunately fed this and you know given that i was a pioneer at the beginning of this thing i i, I suppose i'm i'm old i've got some culpability <laughs> besides being old but there is this very real belief within many companies that security is something that's handled by somebody else yeah there there isn't this notion no matter what the group, no matter what the responsibility, that that security is a part of their job, it's security is part of what they do, and somebody's got their back that is that that security group that's over there in a sock somewhere. 
And I think that's one of the biggest cultural things that we have to try to uh, uh, change people's way of thinking about it. You know, and I think one interesting aspect is that the commonality that all these different groups have in the organization is no one likes unplanned work, right? Like when you read the Phoenix Project and you've been in IT for any given a time, you you get that unplanned work thing right away, right? If there's one takeaway that you you get, right, if you've worked in IT or security or in technology – is that unplanned work. The commonality is nobody likes unplanned work. Unplanned work means you're working nights, maybe weekends, Mm -hmm. that you're doing a lot of Google searching to like figure out not just one problem, but like all train of problems. Right, because it was unplanned. I didn't have time to research this, so now I fucked this up. It's horribly broken, right? And Mm -hmm. I think by working together, maybe from the beginning, or maybe picking a point and saying, you know, we're going to work together to minimize unplanned work, as a byproduct of that, we get security. That yes. it's not just like a culture of security, that it's not just security is like uh, a cost, that it's not just security is this thing we do and security is someone else's responsibility. That if we work together to minimize unplanned work as a byproduct, we probably have some pretty good security as a result. Again, all this we said is very, it's easier said than done, right? I mean, absolutely. <laughs> well, and, that, and that's the thing that I... That's the thing that I think is amazing as my job as a consultant mm. is that I'm like a seagull. Swoop in. I can swoop in, land shit, a, all, shit all over everything, all over everything and, and then I'm fly out. Away. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, did you have a comment there? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many use cases, you know, of what you want to put together, what you want to, you know, be able to build and design. It, there's a lot that comes into play and, you know, many factors to what you want to be able to do to make your own you know, management team, you want to be able to build your own tools for it. You want to be able to have a process in place. Um, you know, those are the big things I really see out of it, but it, it takes time. And I think, you know, we also have a cultural issue that we also need to fix with that as well too, because we can't just drop this on someone's desk and say, Oh yeah, you can go ahead and do this. You know, you're part of the team now to do this. Um, you know, I think, you know, having that structure in place, having a process or a formal procedure is really going to help with that as well. Yeah, and I, I also think as part of that, Tony, is, you know, we all can't be Instagram, right? Like, I don't know if you've read stories about Instagram's infrastructure. They've, I, from all accounts that I've read, they've got, like, the smallest team with the largest amount of infrastructure, right? And they're, like, the shining example, right? Like, the talk about visionaries, they're like the Steve Jobs, right? Kind of, kind of. my son's doing a book report on, on, on Steve Jobs, right? And you appreciate, it was one of the most visionary, say what you will about Jobs, he was one of the most visionary people. Instagram, one of the most amazing stories about IT infrastructure. We're, we're, all, we're all not going to achieve you know, that level. We're going to be right. somewhere in between like really, really poor visionary people and really poor IT infrastructure and the Instagrams and, and Apples of the world. Um, and I think it, it stems from leadership is a huge part of it um, and really good communications, having your teams to be able to communicate in a common goal is is super important when we talk about vulnerability management i even think i've written articles that like it's mostly about communications and yeah. process and really not a whole lot about technology that'll come if you've got good communications and process anyway that was a good story we talked for a long time about that story nice we so, did but See, somebody but else it was, but it was a, one but, but it was a great conversation it was i agree um I wanted to... Oh, there was an interesting Windows vulnerability. Uh, I don't know how interesting it is uh, in terms of the actual vulnerability itself. I just find it interesting that... Is it the RDP one? 
No. Uh, my story number four. You can pwn a Windows box via Notepad EXE. <laughs> now, granted, you got to be on the box. And it's a, well, because all the exploits either pop up Notepad or Calc, right? Yeah, and that's the iron the irony of the that irony? story. The <laughs> ironic irony part of the story. <laughs> I was trying to say both those words at once, apparently. Um, but uh, it, I think the the thing I got from this article oh, was good God, Tavis, Tavis, right? Like, <laughs> how awesome are you that you can go into a piece of code in Windows that's been around since, since XP XP times and find a vulnerability in it? Like that code has been. And that binary has been in the faces of every reverse engineer for close to 20 years. And Tavis comes along and goes, yeah, by the way, there's a vulnerability in it. The, I what, thought it was to, cool. To, I don't think it's earth-shattering. To, to quote the article from Ta uh, and a quote from Tavis, another interesting attack is taking control of the UAC consent dialogue. Right. Which it has runs as an anti-authority system like... Huh. Something about how text huh. is rendered on the screen and subverting huh. that, right? And, and he could take control of you. Yeah, oh, it was really it was a good read. Yeah. Uh, this article came from the register, but I believe yeah. it links to the uh, better articles about um, well, this and, vulnerability. You know, so tie this back to the other article on vulnerability management. You know, We have an example of if you dig hard enough, you're going to find some sort of... Yeah vulnerability or exploit in just about everything that's out there right now so one of the things that i'm asking when i you know am speaking at conferences these days is uh is there something else we can do besides focus on the vulnerabilities is there is there something else to this thing called security rather than this continuous while i think it's important work don't get me wrong you know hunt for vulnerabilities and the security research that goes on but the the continuous you know the pat you know the vulnerabilities discovered the patches is created the 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 check or the plugin is created for the scan engine and you know it's out there patch it in a day a week a year a decade um you know this has been going on for a long time I'm just, you know, in the twilight of my career, just asking the question, can we do this some, you know, is there a, a different way of approaching this? Is there a different way of looking at this? And, and, and I think this is a good example. It is. And I, I think it's really difficult from an engineering perspective to overcome something that I think we've all been faced with and maybe don't want to admit is that when you're building something and trying to solve some engineering problem, that it's about making it work, at least in the first revision right? Like you put a lot of work into in Eclipsium's article here on ZDNet, right? They talk about on embedded systems, how um, they wanted to provide functionality in a specific way. Mm -hmm. And rather than do that and really limit, like I think to get it working, it made it more open, right? And a lot of us have written code and we go, I want to make it work first. And then, you know, I'll lock it down later. And that later never happens right i want to figure out how to interface with that api and then there's not great documentation so right. you know you're looking at the responses parsing it manually just trying to get it work to get it to work and you're like yeah i'll validate all my you know responses and processing later right now i'm going to open it up and management goes that's great hey your release is working past qa we're pushing to production like that's cool sweet and then we end up in this situation which i think is a, a, a good example um is that uh one of the researchers from eclipsium who i haven't met and i've done briefings and 
uh, an interview with them. I love the team. I love the company. I'm biased because uh, I just uh, in I, I it's in the space that I really love as well. Embedded device security or IoT security. Uh, Mickey Shat- Shatoff, he's the principal researcher at Eclipsium, mm-hmm. says this common software design anti-pattern where rather than making the driver only perform specific tasks, it was written in a flexible way to just perform arbitrary actions on behalf of user space. And, and I think this is a common vulnerability, right? We're yeah. not limiting what can happen in our module or our code right? because we want to make it work. We're, just, we're giving people a lot more or code, a lot right, more functionality. Because, because right now it does A, but tomorrow we want it, might want it to do A and B. So Could let's not a, limit B, ourselves C, now. C, X, Y, Z, let's like not, write it in a generic fashion. Let's not and limit guess ourselves. what? Yeah. When I write it in that more generic fashion, it passes my QA test a lot better. Yep. <laughs> so I'm going to write it in that generic. Because <laughs> if I limit it to this specific you know, instance or call or whatever, when something slightly different happens, I get an error and it crashes or I... You know, I have to respond back to the user and say it didn't work, even though it might if I added that as an exception. So now I've got two things that I'm allowing. And then, you know, some someone, user or QA person goes, well, there's a third thing that you didn't consider because mm-hmm. that always happens when you're programming, at least to me anyway. I'm sure many people, right? And then so you got to like, it's, I think like a whitelist versus a blacklist kind of approach. If If you're just like, yeah, like make it open. It, it works better, yep. and, and we never get to that point I mean, where we're works, truly like locking it down. You know, it works when, more. When it, con- it, yeah, it works better for the consumer as opposed to works better. Right, right. it's yeah. true. Jeff, I sorry. was just going to add. Uh, you know, the IP any any allow rule makes every yes. firewall right. function with your application. It's exactly that, Jeff. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so Eclipsium found uh, forty vulnerabilities. That's it. Forty kernel drivers from twenty vendors. Uh, had this particular flaw uh, that I haven't read. Uh, they have a GitHub uh, that talks about the effective uh, affected drivers. Um, mm. And it says later today, but that's when this article was published, uh, August 10th. So it's on the Eclipsium blog. So, Paul, I've got an article, uh, which is a little fun. Uh, and there were so many things that came out of DEF CON that we should be talking about and can Agreed. talk about. There always is, yeah. There always is, so it's a huge, massive thing. But one of the things that I thought was a little bit off the wall that I saw and saw some components and then it all came together. Oh, uh, is this warshipping? No. Oh. Well, no, this is war- I want to hit that one next. Okay. But no, this was the uh, anti-surveillance techniques, my story number four, to make you look like a car. Uh, and this woman... Uh, uh, at DEFCON talked about dealing with um, the automatic um, uh, uh, license plate detectors and automatic surveillance. Oh, is and this the one they sent their license plate to null? No, no. This is That was amazing. Null way. license Dr- plate Drugi. gets security research $12,000 in tickets. And we, I'd love to talk about that one too. So we'll hit this one quick. Uh, effectively, she this woman created a line of clothing in which it features license plates mm-hmm. on the clothing. And the intent is so that when you go by a automatic detection uh, surveillance system for people and that type of stuff, it doesn't see your face. It sees the license plates hmm. and identifies you instead of by your face or as a person, as a car. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Does that mean we should start putting photographs uh, on the back of our cards instead of license plates? Yes. Maybe. That's really interesting. Yeah. And, Jeff, and Jeff the, embodied the hacker spirit and, right there. I and, love I, it. <laughs> and I got this because I saw a couple of people at DEF CON wearing these outfits that were just made like 
the, the print on the, the outfit was of license plates. I'm like, that's weird. And that's kind of cool. And then at like the EFF, in the EFF mm-hmm. booth area, they had an automatic detection system that had a monitor and a camera using uh, open ALPR type mm-hmm. of stuff. And it would say, person, person, every time a person walked by. I didn't actually see it when someone walked by with a license plate to do the automatic license plate detection. Oh, uh, you yes. have Arlo. Yes. And it does that detection. Does it? It says that was a person, that was a car. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you look at your, your logs and your Arlo, check it out. They made a software update. It wasn't always like this, but okay, I, it wasn't for security reasons. Like I, I had right. packages that were being <laughs> delivered, so I was checking my Arlo to, you <laughs> yeah. know, to see. And it said uh, in the history when it detected motion, I even think it can detect animal, animal, person, person, car. person car, car, yeah. squirrel, now, but, squirrel. But can it detect the license plate and give you information about the license plate? Uh, not to my knowledge in Arlo. So that's one of the things that I want to do is that for me, if I were to put Arlo facing the street to do that type of detection, one, it would go off all the damn time. We live on a busy street. Mm. But what I really want to do is I there's a uh, an open source version of uh, ALPR, open APL, APLR, and there's a little bit commercialist version that's open source as well <clears throat> um, that I'd love to put a camera by the street by our house and then just do license plate detection on every car that goes by. But also I think a, an interesting thing that we did back in the day, right, is you set up an antenna and you sniff wireless signals. So, so Wi-Fi, that, Bluetooth, that said, right? In a person... Mm-hmm. may have a device on them that's emitting Bluetooth and or Wi-Fi signals. Mm-hmm. In a car, uh, Same like thing. one of my vehicles has Same thing. 4G, yeah. Wi-Fi, and yeah. Bluetooth or, or, in the car. Yeah, and or car and or device. And that's, yeah. that said, a couple of moons ago when uh, we were dealing with uh, Pony Express, mm. I have one of their Pwn Pulse devices. And it does just that. And it is close enough to the street for the most part, where it can detect fairly strong signals. Mm-hmm. And I have thousands of fingerprints of Bluetooth and, and Wi-Fi you, devices. And then you correlate that data together yeah. with the images from the camera and the Wi-Fi signals to Bingo. make a better detection. Bingo. Then you need machine learning and AI. Then you can make a product. And blockchain Larry. for stability. You, and blockchain for, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we, we, had, we, had touched, we touched on two other stories, Paul. Yes. Uh, no license plate. We're on the license plate thing. Yeah. This one was amazing. We were talking about this at work. So Drugi, they took out a vanity plate. Drugi got a vanity plate of null, all caps, null, uh, and figuring that if he were to get a speeding ticket or get pulled over, uh, and it would ri- get written up and get it entered the system, it would be as null, and he wouldn't. Nothing would happen. He wouldn't get a ticket. Yeah. The problem is he got a ticket. It entered into the system, and then the back end processor had all of these fines associated to. Uh, 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 ticketing uh, for the ALPR type of stuff assigned to null. So now null was in the system and they knew how to oh. assign it. Like, this is Miracle on 34th Street. Yeah. Hey, Santa Claus is uh, on trial down at the courthouse. Let's send him all the mail. But, but, but like, to me, that was, a, that was amazing in that, hey, I'm going to be null so I can get out of shit. And then all of a sudden now mm-hmm. null's in the system and, like, we know who to assign all this crap to. Like, uh, Oh, oh! And uh, talking about his trials and tribulations, I want to say it was thirty-six thousand dollars in fines that he got. The article to, said twelve thousand. Well, thirty-six thousand dollars in fines that he got taken away, mm-hmm. and since then he's racked up another twelve. Null has racked up another twelve thousand dollars in fines. Interesting. And the reason it's null is because the 
back-end ALPR stuff can't recognize the plate. Yeah, so it sets it to so null. So it sets it to null. Whoops. Now, see, if it was Python, they could set it to none, which is different from null, and he'd mm. be all set. Yep. <laughs> now, 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 the, now, the one Until that I, someone registered a, a license plate with none, and then you'd be screwed. Yep. Now, the one that I thought was uh, kind of neat, too, you know, license plate thing for a 30-second uh, diversion, uh, out in front of Paris, parked in the, the, you know, the expensive car lots, uh, you know, in the valet area, was a black Corvette with the license plate from California of Jump ESP. Interesting. I, I actually saw that one. <laughs> I have yeah. a picture of it still. That nice. was so funny. I did not take a pic- I did not take a picture, but uh, I saw that and I'm like, I said to my wife, "Hey, look at that! License plate says Jump ESP." She's like, "So? <laughs> it, it's a nerd thing. It's a nerd it's, thing. It's a nerd thing." Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I had to explain it to her. She's like, "Oh, cool. I guess." Right. Hacker Connor should learn something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the response I get. All right. When I try to explain shit like that to my yeah. wife too. She was she was in a little different. My wife was there at DefCon and some of Black Hat, but she was in a different state of mind. Of, yeah, yeah, I should, yeah. I should, this is this is a kind of cool culture. I should try to learn something, and, right? And that type of stuff. So, what was the other story that we had? We had the license plate thing and worshipping. Oh, worshipping. worshipping. Yes, you've researched. Kick, no, kick it, kick it off, Paul. Well, you've researched. No, this kick before. it off. Essentially, researchers from uh, IBM's X Force, yes, uh, presented at I believe Def, DefCon and Black Hat, or one of the two. Uh, or both, and it, it, it's it's again, it's nothing new from our perspective, well, well, no, right? But, well, they they we've they, speculated but, 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 this for some d- d- time. D- d- no, let's 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 go with their research first. They put a Pi Zero inside of a a package that they were going to ship. Yep. Uh, I were they sniffing Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, something? I mean, yes. we've speculated. The, you, you the, could, the the device was powered in transit. Yes, and battery it, powered. It arrived at their destination and could have potentially launched exploits when arrived at its location. Uh, conceivably, I've well, we've always talked about not always, but we have talked about in the past that it, at any point in that package mm-hmm. journey, if you're sniffing, mm-hmm. if you're doing nefarious things, mm-hmm. exploiting, uh, you know tricking people into yep. connecting to your Wi-Fi if you're into that kind of all thing. All sorts of things. All sorts of things, right? Um, that you could conduct attacks remotely. Mm-hmm. Now, at some point, you got to get that back or be able to retrieve the data from it. So, you, I think they had a 4G they did. LTE, right, to, to, uh, to backhaul. My understanding was that, yeah. yes, they did. And totally, po- I mean, more possible today than 10 years ago or 15 years right. ago, right? Or today, even, you, Or even f- five years ago. Yeah, like today, I feel like yeah. five. Five is not an arbitrary number, I. But we'll it, go, no, go I, on, go I agree. I mean, to get uh, 4G modem, right? Yeah. Uh, 4G LTE and Wi-Fi on a device that's small enough, uh, light enough, and cheap enough to put in a package. Do- doable because you may doable. not recover it, right? right? Doable. It's doable more, today. More expensive. It's yeah. much more doable today. And the, so they did this, and they presented. And uh, where did they? Oh, hack in the box. No, it was no. De- it was Black Hat DefCon. Oh. Hack in the box is what they're saying in the oh, article right, title. Not right. the conference, but it's a hack in, in a the box. box. Right. So, so they release this stuff at Black Hat DefCon. Mm-hmm. I don't remember which. I don't remember which. Um, and they der- deemed the the method in which they were able to put a Pi Zero uh, in a package and deliver it to the customer and hack the stuff when it got on site uh, as worshipping, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Uh, which they said they dubbed the term for this as being worshipping. 
because in uh, 2014, uh, there was a computer security researcher that presented at DerbyCon mm -hmm. on a very similar technique. Uh, I remember covering that story. Technique, yeah. uh, I know we've covered this in a couple which, times. Yeah. Uh, in which that computer security researcher uh, attempted to uh, do the similar type of thing, ship a device powered through the mail, do multiple types of things. They learned a lot from the even potential from doing it. And I say potential because that, Legalities. Se that security researcher found in conversations with the EFF that it was highly illegal to send powered electronics, especially on lithium-ion batteries, through any type of postal any sort of transit domestic services. or international i would yeah, imagine uh, yeah so you put powered lithium ion batteries on a plane and it catches fire in the cargo hold mm -hmm. that's bad you're fucked that's why on you put it in a car you but put it in commercial a airlines uh been, we were reminded of this right. when we we're traveling right you can't have lithium right uh ion batteries but, in your checked baggage but do you, but that right, exactly so in the packaging do you declare it can you ship it the biggest thing is that you have to provide a, a physical detachment of those batteries from its power source. Gotcha. They can't be powered. They and can't be powered. When you order any type of battery, like from Amazon, right, it comes with that label yeah. that oh, says... And if you buy a UPS yeah. from anywhere that is shipped, it says that label, and you physically have to pull, pull something the, out yes. or to insert something to make the battery connection. Right. So shipping... Yeah, you have to the, take the battery out and flip it around and connect it. Right. So out. to... Take some device that is powered, powered on is against all federal regulations, mm -hmm. even if it's airplane, automotive, ground transportation, you name it. Mm. The security researcher actually consulted with the EFF to figure out what the feasibility of this was and was it legal. And the EFF came back and said, no, this is highly illegal for these exact reasons. For the existing regulations and yeah. laws that are on the books right. today. Right. Well, and then nobody, nobody will ever do this because it, uh, it would be breaking. But IBM, IBM X-Force claims to be doing it as part of their... Their stuff. Well, I was going to say, didn't they use an IoT modem to actually go ahead and connect with other devices that they're around? And when the device was like dormant, if it didn't make any connections, it would actually just power off on its location. I mean, I know I've seen a couple IoT modems like going around that mm -hmm. can actually uh, connect to variant like different versions of LTE, which I think is cool. But for a device that small and for under a hundred bucks to put everything together, I I would never expect an IoT device to actually be able to do that too. Yeah. But but the cool big that it but, does but that the, is but, but when, it how, when it does power up, there is a risk it could catch fire, right? Which is and having it connected to a battery at all uh, in shipping is just saying. Is Larry and I have done a lot with fire and IoT devices, uh, but the, 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 the biggest <laughs> thing, some shit's gotten really hot. Like it definitely could have caught fire. The, the biggest thing oh, know, has, there, yeah, the has there actually been fire or just, yes, yes, yes. Okay. So the biggest thing that really grinds my gears about this whole article is that this security researcher that presented at DerbyCon. Uh, in 2014, mm -hmm. that could largely only design a device and talk about some the feasibility, the feasibility right. and some of the other challenges that came up that really released some interesting tools that you could actually use yep. outside of just the Who whole was that general researcher thing. In 2014? Uh, so uh, they did a presentation at DerbyCon called If It Fits It Ships. Yes, I remember that. Or If It Fits It Sniffs. Yes, something like that. Yeah. I am that security researcher. Oh, that was your presentation. And I dubbed it. Worshipping. It wasn't IBM X Force. It was you. It's fucking me. Oh, <laughs> uh, so now we're finally getting around to it. Oh, now God. we get the full circle, right? Like, but but see, I thought you had. But I thought you had. Logo, Larry. 
I thought that you, don't have a logo. I don't have a trademark. I don't have a website. I don't have a theme song. So I thought oh. you had done the research and decided not to do the talk, but you did do the talk. Oh yeah, yeah. I did the talk. I have the device. Yeah, I have the device sitting in my basement, all with all the uh, 18650 batteries that I harvested from laptop yes, batteries I that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that I got shit for coming into Las, uh, coming mm-hmm. out of Las Vegas because I went from DerbyCon to Vegas with. 32 lithium-ion 18650 batteries. And I have the stories to tell going through TSA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I dubbed it Warshipping, not IBM's X-Force. Interesting. And it's, it's the thing that I think that's amazing about this industry is that people forget history. Yes. And history is five years ago. It's the subject of my keynote talk that I'm giving at Hacker Halted and, and other Here's another open. example for you. <laughs> so, because, you know, this is only 2014. Mm. And quite honestly, well, I had to fucking Google myself to figure out that I had done the talk in 2014. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. in all of this, all I kept, kept thinking is, you know, back in the Cold War, we just used to implant bugs, and it was mostly listening devices. Uh-huh. You know, but you know the and the, then they and then you had Acoustic Kitty. Right. So, I mean, the idea of implanting things with something that's going to extract da- data, so it's it's more high tech now because it's it's tapping into Wi-Fi. Yep. But uh, the the concept is not particularly new. Yep. The Agreed. technology yeah. changed. Right. And and you know, just to underscore uh, for what it's worth, they they were not shipping a device. The device is hidden in the in the in the packaging so you could ship anything well right and this is, yeah and i'm sure they could work to improve it they, so uh, yeah they they took a they took a stuffed animal oh i see yeah, like, yeah they yeah. took a stuffed yeah, animal like a and stuffed that's a, what they took what's that it was like a duck yeah, like, yeah. Duck stuffed animals what yeah. they used they took a stuffed animal put but a pie zero and a battery so there's well, a picture well, of it well, yeah well, they well, flattened well. it but, so it could look like a piece of cardboard that but, was part of the packing but did the duck float that's all i have to ask does it does it Never mind. <laughs> I don't think it's a machine washable dryer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> do, do, does a duck float? Do rocks float? Do churches float? Uh, great gravy? Do, do witches float? Yes. Is it if it Burner! <laughs> uh, yeah, but the, the, to me, the, the whole IBM X-Force thing, I love those guys over there. They do lots oh, of amazing stuff. Oh, it's a fantastic team. We know people that work. It's a great team. You totally ripped me off, guys. And you did shit that was illegal. If they actually shipped it. They claim they did. Oh, okay. Uh, we never claimed that we did because it's fucking illegal. Right. <sighs> so uh, on the legality point, Larry, I mean, yeah. technically, every time we hack or, or do a pen test, it's technically illegal, but we get the permission. permissions and authorizations. But are you saying there is no way to do that? How, how would you instance? get permission? Uh, so if we think about U.S.-centric, how would you get permission from the federal government to ship a highly, uh, a potentially highly dangerous device powered by lithium-ion batteries that could uh, ignite and crash an airplane or cause damage to, a say, a, a FedEx truck? FedEx ground. Great, FedEx ground. You're going to put it in a truck and it catches on fire in the middle of an interstate somewhere. And it kills the driver. Who are you going to get at the federal government to say, yeah, that's a good idea? Mm-hmm. So no the answer question. to my question like, is, uh, this, is a, this is a federal thing. It's a federal thing. It's a, it's a federal law that you cannot ship powered devices. Period. But just for argument's sake, though, the, the laws against uh, breaking into things, aren't they not also... Right. Federal laws. The difference is right, but now, now that said, potential, that, that potential said, harm to human life. Right. That well, that said, 
yeah, Jeff, if you have an organization and uh, it's a federal law that I can't break into you, but you give me permission to do so, mm-hmm. uh, great. Uh, now, you say, oh, great, I can ship this thing to you, uh, and you say, I give you permission to ship it to me. Um, the problem is that there's so many other people in the middle of that that haven't granted you permission to do so. Right. Who do you who do you ask but, at the federal government or any of these transport carriers to ask permission to do so? So what I'm getting out of this is we need to advance uh, uh, security testing, security research to start including this because certainly the bad guys can do this because they're not certainly pay no, yeah. regard to the laws. Yep. Um, how do we test against it? Uh, do we do a proof of concept and, and hand carry it so we don't, you know, because the, the article said, well, you know, we can save time and money. We just ship it and we don't even have to leave our, yeah, that, our office. That's, our, that's um, exactly the uh, the tack that we took. We either drive it ourselves uh, and placing us in the, the, the liable spot should it catch fire or uh, we, you know, we hand carry it, any of those types of things. And, and those are very much the things that we, that we Or survived. can we, of course, this, this defeats perhaps the purpose of it. Uh, maybe it shouldn't be in the box. Maybe it should be in the duck and it's batteries not included. Mm. And, uh, and you get, and you, you know, it's, it's, it, it becomes, we have to coin a new term for fishing, batter riffing, whatever, and, and entice the recipient to put a battery in the device to power it up and then it works. Yeah. Ship the battery separate. It has additional feature set. Mm, that'd be interesting. I know what I'm doing this weekend. <laughs> well, I mean, you could if uh, UPSs are shipped. UPS is like mm-hmm. battery backups, not the shipping. Yeah, yeah. plural. UPS is shipped via UPS, just right. Yeah, exactly. But uh, they have the little plastic tab that you. In fact, yep. many electronics you get right you get to pull a little plastic tab yep. out i always thought so that it would preserve the battery but obviously some of the uh it, it's the it's so the battery doesn't catch on fire is so they don't catch fire yep. especially when they're on the slow boat to china, from china or Not to china a, from or china on an airplane mm-hmm. or yep anywhere oh that that's next day shipping paul <laughs> the slow <laughs> <laughs> So I paid extra for that, right? So, so just just an amazing coincidence of technologies and the the duck bear thing. You know, we we talk back to my presentation uh, at ShmooCon in like 2016 or earlier about putting rogue access points inside of devices. Mm-hmm. That was tons of fun, and one of the first the the first inspiration was one of RenderMan's uh, rogue access points stuffed inside of a teddy bear that he delivered to. A brand new baby at a hospital. Ironically, earlier than that, Render put it in a UPS. Yes. Remember that? And this, the crazy part is, I, I probably told the story on the show that you know many years ago when uh, you know, we had a cat that went under my desk and took a leak on my UPS mm. and shocked himself so badly that like he was terrified of my office for months because uh, he shorted the damn UPS out. Right. I still have that UPS, which is the identical model that Render used right. for that. All comes full so circle. It doesn't smell like cat pee anymore because it's been so long. Because <laughs> I've squirted it with shit. <laughs> it's broken. Uh, I just, <clears throat> in the news, uh, Brandon Edwards, chief scientist at Capsulate, uh, sat down with us during Enterprise Security Weekly nice. at Black Hat, and we had a discussion of container escapes. 
it's a must watch when that's released you should absolutely watch that and define right. container uh so not shipping container right but like docker container docker okay it, essentially what brandon pointed out was one of the things was that essentially like containers run on top of the kernel yeah. right and so that means many of the kernel exploits some Still of which work. get cves some of which don't mm -hmm. if you're inside a container the way to break out is to just kernel run a kernel exploit. exploit. Yep. Uh, run C, easier, he's like, yeah, that was sensational, and everyone said that, right? But uh, you've got a wide variety. You've got your pick of the litter for con you know kernel uh, exploits, which largely people don't patch because they're like, oh, well, someone has to be in my system. Well, guess what? When you stuff that crappy web app inside of a container yeah, they're, they're on your and system. someone gains a shell, they're on, on your system. system. And, I mean, not 100% of the time, but a large percentage of the time, according to Brandon's research, you can exploit that kernel vulnerability via a container. So we talked yep. about container security. Awesome. Matt Alderman was there. He comes from that space, right? He was at Layered yeah. Insight, was purchased by Qualys. <laughs> at the end, Brendan is very animated and very passionate about this topic. It was Had he been awesome. Drinking? No. He was... <laughs> He was he was going a mile a minute. Uh, awesome. it's just, I'm going to be very frank. He was going a mile a minute. I was struggling to keep up. But what I uh, like concluded that with was, I don't think we got any really good like defenses. Like I'm kind of scared right now. <laughs> like I've got absolutely containers. I'm scared. So, um, so uh, I would you know you, that initial conversation we just had here. My thought is is that don't deploy shitty web apps to a container. Because well, yeah. because Some a container uh, because a container will not save you from a shitty web app. Right, it's true. A container will just contain your shitty web app until you have a kernel exploit, or then, not contain it. Right, as as it were. <clears throat> right. Yeah, and, and that's you know uh, there are configurations that you can you know basically say like this container can talk to this container right. on this port, and this container can access this storage uh, volume, which is a Docker volume, yep. right? But this container cannot. But right. like. But, all but that, that but yeah, that go, that all goes away when you compromise ring zero. When you're in the kernel, yep. now you've got access to all the con all the containers, including and all the underlying operating system, and and yeah. like uh, so in in Docker, you've got like containers that are mini running systems, but you've also got if you choose to configure them, Docker volumes, which are shared, yep. and you define what's shared, to who can where, share it, where, who where. can access the uh, storage. Can, uh, they're kind of like containers, but storage mm -hmm. objects, right? You've also got networking objects where you define the they're, networks. They're a container for networks. Multiple right? networks or one network, whatever the case may be that your containers can talk mm -hmm. on. It's all defined in software, right? It's in your Compose file. It's in Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. in your Docker file. You define all of that. And like Larry said, you get into the kernel. You're Now you're you can access all, all of that means nothing essentially yep. in terms of protection. So, so I, so I have a question for you guys. Um, you know, given that a lot of these container environments are third party, they're outsourced and the allure to the, to the customer is, you know, you can save money on infrastructure, just come to the cloud. We'll host everything for you. What are your recommendations on safeguarding if if you're the consumer you know you're you're the the organization that's outsourced or, or signed up for one of these cloud providers what do you what do you recommend in terms of safeguarding uh or 
where do you draw the line in what you have control over to protect and safeguard versus what you're sort of giving up and relying on the the host provider to protect? And yes, it is obliquely a PCI question. Oh boy! So how, how much time do we have? So, aside from the PCI, and once you get to the kernel exploits, there, there's a whole level of stuff there. And I think this becomes the whole. To me, this whole same adage we've been talking for years is that uh, cloud, Docker, Kubernetes—you're just really running your stuff on a in a hosted environment on someone else's computer. Mm -hmm. You still right. need to consider all of those other risk mitigation techniques that you would have for any of your applications, even though it's on someone else's computer. To, to, to absolutely convince correct. me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. No, right? no, no. You're correct. But you you still need to have a firewall. You still need to have a WAF. Air you still, firewall, yeah. A firewall. You still need to have a WAF. You still need to have proper security practices for, for coding and input sanitization and uh, software updating uh, uh, and library updating and... Uh, account management and well, uh, it, password policies. Yeah, well, uh, here, along those lines, the, uh, more specifically, uh, the last two points, Larry, I think uh, a secrets vault. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of applications fall victim. You can have the most secure application in the world and the most secure mm -hmm. hosting provider. I'm putting secure in air quotes, yep. right? But if you're not managing your secrets in a vault, that means an attacker that can bypass your defenses in any capacity, if there's clear text passwords in the database. If there's on your yeah, GitHub or file a configuration or file has a password in it. If your SSL certs are not properly mm -hmm. secured, if they're not uh, being accessed, a vault is a great technology to do that. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, uh, I'll admit it, I have not implemented a vault yet. However, I've identified that as like a pivotal thing for your application security to speak to Jeff's mm -hmm. uh, problem where I'm running my container or my software right on someone else's computer that i need to protect my secrets right and jeff your background you can probably attest to that right that's mm. like probably really important uh in, in this game right yeah. uh the second thing is tony looks very mysterious he does he looks very <laughs> ominous right now um there's just like just thinking about the stuff that's going through like you guys are saying it's just incredible uh, thank you, Tony. So uh, the other thing is, in really what I've learned about protecting applications in, in, in this environment, Jeff, is there needs to be something inside the, the application. So what I've observed is there are like hooks into your app, uh, like Signal Sciences, for example, mm -hmm. will, in all there, I mean, there's, you can do this a number of different ways, but like looking at all the HTTP requests and responses, doing analysis of something inside the app, right, or in front of the app that's providing some level of WAF or the yep. next generation yep. WAF, as they, they call it. Uh, it. It Don't associate it with the WAFs of yesterday. Mm -hmm. There's some security to be gained by looking at that. Then inside the container, in fact, the company Brandon works for provides Linux security, part of which is for containers, something inside the container, right? Not inside the kernel, not inside a privileged container, but inside the containers you're deploying, there's something that's providing a level of visibility and ultimately, hopefully, security, so that when I take my container in my app and I put it on someone else's server, I'm getting both visibility and security to the best we can today with the technology that we have available. Uh, and that's going to look different depending on which cloud provider you're using, depending on which technology within the cloud provider 
that you're using, right? I've been looking into serverless lately, different ball game. However, from what I'm understanding, it's really just uh, your applications running inside of one of their containers, essentially, right? So that application security becomes more important. So is it fair to conclude that uh, uh, if you're going to run your stuff in on somebody else's system, uh, you still have responsibility, and that and and the 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 groups within organizations that are typically typically going to sign up for this is going to be the app teams, the business teams, mm-hmm. probably not the security teams. Yes. So to tie this back to our earlier discussion, mm-hmm. it's it's ownership and accountability and responsibility for the stuff that you own, and the, and and you know you're the you're the admin, you're the developer, you're the maintainer. That's where the onus is. That's where the responsibility is. Um, I'm sure there's many companies that the security teams find out our app is where they did what. Right. And, and it's not just been... where, but it, it's also the other aspect of this is the configuration of your cloud instance. In other words, right. I mean, we've see, <clears throat> seen this with S3, right? Because when you're deploying an application up into the cloud like this, you're likely going to use some kind of shared storage technology. S3 is very popular. What's the config? Can the world read my S3? bucket which by the way i put my ssl certs and keys into my s3 bucket oops the world can right. read that right i mean that's really right. one of the basic uh examples but you have to secure the configuration around your apps that configuration largely because it's new to me and a, and a lot of others is very complex right to understand it's also very new not a whole lot of resources and training i mean go back to tony's conversation about creating training and creating a community around things uh, largely what I've learned about some of the new technology in the cloud is from talking to people, not so much that there's formal training that's updated on it, right? You go to Pluralsight, for example, and look at AWS Lambda, like the most recent courses from 2015, the best I can find. Uh, yeah. Even yeah, Tyler, I mean, Tyler made a comment to me. Is I'm like, oh, I need to go like watch a Pluralsight class. He's like, dude, good luck. I've been there. Like, there's, like I basically have to read Amazon's documentation yeah, to, yeah. to understand it. So. Yeah, I mean, you have to read Amazon's documentation. You have to go through their research. I mean, there's not even much for their security programs that they have as well, too. Mm-hmm. You know, and you have to pay to do that as well. And there's not much to talk about as well with AWS and for pen testing on AWS, really. I think the most I've ever seen is really from like Rhino Security Labs when they talk about mm-hmm. some of their AWS exploitation framework tools that they have yep. or, you know, escaping some S3 buckets, you know. But what about Azure, right? You know, Sean Metcalf is doing some stuff with Office 365, you know, telling how there's only one domain admin that can manage the entire Azure or Office 365 application that they have. No mm-hmm. one else can be added to it. So it's like, if you lose that one person that's supposed to be a domain admin, who, who manages your entire environment then? Yeah. You know, or how do you pass that along? And I think as well too, you know, you know, AWS, Azure, all the different cloud providers that are out there, I think they're still trying to develop, you know, some security features, some roles and permissions still that we haven't seen yet that we need to start playing with as well too. But we need to find the resources and the documentation for it or someone needs to create it. Yeah, and it's hard to manage configuration in this environment. I think it goes back to my earlier uh, discussion about uh, understanding what you have, understanding the configuration of it, and when it's new, being very open about it. And then as you learn, maybe being able to uh, put some more controls around it if that ever happens. When we're looking at deploying into these new technologies, just making it work is a challenge. Never mind, how do we make it work securely, which further complicates things, puts more controls in place, which has 
a higher potential to break some functionality. So I push a release, I break it because I tried to secure. How many people have changed a configuration for security, but I can go all the way back to before I graduated college and go, I want to make this more secure. I'm going to change the configuration, and I broke it. Yo, yeah, That's yeah. when I understood the security was hard. That was one of the hard like lessons, right? And now that's exponentially harder today because if you're deploying an application in Amazon's cloud, right? You've got a, maybe you're using their secrets vault, maybe you're using S3, maybe you're using Fargate, maybe you're uh, configuring Lambda, you've got security roles, maybe you're using RDS. All of that has configuration that speaks to the security. Larry mentioned the firewall. It's my, in our case, when we had a security incident, is my Docker API open to the internet or is it yep. not? Managing that configuration is so important, but also much harder today, especially if you don't have some kind of tool or framework, you know, SaltStack, uh, uh, yep. Puppet, Chef, Ansible, right? Something to help manage your configuration. Uh, and then you've got the tools that do automate the deployment, like Jenkins, for example. What's the security behind Ansible. that? Ansible. Ansible is another, yeah. right? Ansible is a big one, right? So it's hard to answer your point, Jeff. It's hard today <laughs> to do this. It really is. But yeah, I, go cloud. <laughs> I, I mean, at the same token, what, what excites me is that the potential is there, right? The potential is there to be able to automate and audit the configurations and uh, automate the checks, automate the deployment. Uh, change configuration on the flying and, and even stop a build, right? Some uh, commercial companies I <clears throat> speak with, and you know, you can configure open source software or write your own to do this, will say if your application's being deployed in the cloud, as in Jeff's example, that if it has this type of configuration, you know what? You need to stop the build. Like that, that just doesn't go. If your Docker API is exposed to the internet, you know what? That configuration never gets deployed developer or sysadmin, ops, opsec, whatever, gets a ticket. Everyone gets a ticket. I don't know. However your process works, you get a ticket and say, nope, you can't deploy it that way, right? And maybe it doesn't break the build at first. Maybe you just get the ticket and it goes, and you've got a time window before it goes and removes that configuration, which is a configuration that I like because, again, all of this is new, right? Maybe for 24 hours it is deployed. Of course, in 24 hours, if your Docker API is exposed, you're likely going to get pwned. There's no <laughs> authentication. Someone's going to, you know, ransomware or DDoS or crypto mine, uh, you know, that stuff. Because um, we can scan the internet as a, at a higher rate. But maybe there's some time window where if that's deployed, you get a ticket. The ticket says, look, you've deployed this insecure configuration. You got about, you got eight hours to fix it. If you don't fix it in eight hours, I'm rolling back the release, Right. That kind of thing is, is really exciting because I don't think we've had quite that granular level yeah. around controls and security we before. Have we have not. It's always Mind been, blown. Someone stood up but, a Windows server when, and it's missing they, patches. But <laughs> when they sold me on the, on the outsource to the cloud, they said it was going to be easy and cheap and it would simplify all my security. It's like really none of those things. <laughs> it's, it's all, it's, it's it all it's, the things that you needed to do before plus someone else's computer. It's all of those things and it's none of those things, essentially. So, so none of the security goes away? What am I signing up for? I mean, it's it's like thinking, you know, you buy a firewall and the firewall's got supposed to have like all of its patches already included right out of the box, right? No, that's, that's not the case with Amazon. You know, you have to go ahead and go through every single different configuration and make sure every single security setting is enabled for what you need to use for your purpose. Mm -hmm. And so that it makes sure it doesn't go out to the public net space. Right. 
Yep. Exactly. Hey, the boss says our hey, segment's Klaus. running long. Yep. Okay. It's not just the segment. Whoa. Uh, if it's running long, we should we should, we should conclude. Ra- should I think it's up. a great point to conclude the segment. Exactly. Basically, agreed. We're all screwed when it comes to cloud security. So, hey, Larry, take us out. Over and cloud.